Hello and welcome to another episode of Envisioneering Exchange, the podcast where industry leaders discuss the most important topics in building and urban efficiency. I'm your host, John Sheff, Dan Foss's Director of Public and Industry Affairs, and you can subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, or wherever it is you get your podcasts. Today's topic is sustainable buildings in a post-pandemic world, and I'm thrilled to be joined by my guest, Scott Foster. Scott is the Director of Sustainable Energy for the United Nations Economic Commission for Europe, and there he manages the energy team for the UN in Geneva and is responsible for development and delivery on the energy program on behalf of the 56 member states. Scott joined the UN in 2011 as Director of the UNECE Sustainable Energy Division. He has more than 30 years experience in the energy field, having worked extensively with private companies, governments, and international organizations on strategic decision-making, investments, energy policy, market design, and climate change. Scott, thanks so much for being here. Welcome to the show. Please, let's jump in. Tell us a little bit about your role at the UN and what you and your team are working on. Well, thank you very much, John. It's a pleasure to be with you. Thank you for inviting me to join this show. We are working on sustainable energy. That's the name of the sub-program. That's the name of my division. It's a bit of a misleading expression because the minute you talk to folks about sustainable energy, they immediately conclude that you're talking about renewables and climate change. And that is actually true. We do work on those topics. But I like the expression that we work on energy for sustainable development. And that's a recognition that for some countries, climate change is absolutely critical. It's the species existential threat that we face, and we have to come to grips with it. But there's a load of other countries on the planet for whom development and their daily struggle to survive is critical. They're worried about putting food on the table, a roof over their heads, So our challenge is actually finding integrated solutions that deliver both on the development angle as well as the climate angle. And that's why I refer to energy for sustainable development. We have four key areas that we work on. I would describe them more generically as four broad areas of activity. The first one that we work on is reducing the environmental footprint of the existing system. The second one is on sustainable resource management, making sure investments are going into the resources that we need for the future. The third area is reforming and really transforming the energy system to what we need for tomorrow. And then the final area is what we call pathways, but it's really a strategic engagement with countries to help them understand what their choices are and how they might get there. Yeah, and I love that focus. Yes, of course, climate is important and it's it's a crisis that we need to start addressing, but that's not all sustainability is and really is about putting developing countries on a path towards sustainability so that they have resources today and tomorrow. So I think that's that's really awesome that the mission is focused that way. Before we kind of go further, can you give us a particular case study or an example that best illustrates this mission? Sure. Just to be clear for your audience, uh, the United Nations Economic Commission for Europe, folks always think that we're dealing with Europe, and and we are. But the definition of Europe in in this terms is, is quite broad, because our membership includes Canada and the United States. It includes Western, Central, and Eastern Europe. It includes the former Soviet Union, Central Asia, the Caucasus. It includes Israel and Turkey. So it's, if you will, a very colonial view uh, of Europe. So it's 
Yeah, that's pretty broad. Yeah. We work in a number of areas here at UNEC. I run the energy sub-program, but we have as well sub-programs in transportation, in environment, in forestry. There's eight different sub-programs that are under our umbrella. Some good examples of the work we do, I think, would come from the transport sector, where the division actually develops in collaboration with governments and in uh, collaboration with the automotive industry, all of the standards for automobiles. So it's the headlights, it's the seatbelts, it's the road signs, it's how highways are done. And that's a collaborative that gives you consistent approaches to safety and regulation in the transport sector. If I come back to home, which is the energy division, we've developed, for example, best practice guidance on methane management in operating coal mines. So if you follow the principles that we've come to an agreement on, you're able to recover the methane that is emitting as a coal mine is operating, and you reduce the risk of explosions. And whenever you're dealing with an underground coal mine, if there's an accident and it goes boom, you've pretty much trashed the local social fabric of a community, all those lives lost, et cetera. So it's really a critically important area. If I can take one final step back, I would say that we expect our member governments to be working to improve the quality of life of citizens. And we do anticipate that they will be behaving in ways that are rational, rational economically, rational environmentally, and rational socially. So our work at ECE is really in a collaborative with member states to deliver those outcomes trying to get towards sustainable development. Uh, What are the standards you need? What are the best practices you need in any of these areas? Once we get the consensus, we have to get out there and disseminate them. So it's kind of a broad brush view of of what we're about. Yeah, and I'm glad you brought that example of, uh, you know, standards and coal mines and methane, because that really is the nitty gritty of sustainability and sustainable development. Like you mentioned, I'm sure people expect you to talk about renewables and everything going on there, but this is really kind of the the down and dirty of sustainability. So I'm glad that you brought that up. Touching on our current state, how have things changed for you and your team in the last year since the pandemic started? Oh, that's actually a great question. Um, And I would say it changed a lot. And it's changed a lot in terms of how we work on a day-to-day basis. And frankly, we're just getting used to using a lot of the online tools and figuring out what we shouldn't be doing and what we should be doing. And it's amazing how we just learn all of these little details along the way. But as a result of that, we've got much broader engagement with people who might join our work from Kazakhstan or Tajikistan who are interested in what we're doing, but they can't make the trip to Geneva for a workshop. Well, suddenly with technology, we're able to bring them on board And as a result, our products and our results are both more robust, but also have broader application because they they take them back home. So when I think about the pandemic, and I think in terms of resilience, I like um, Dickens' A Christmas Carol with the ghosts of Christmas past, the ghost of Christmas present, and the ghost of Christmas yet to come. We're dealing with the pandemic now, which is the ghost of Christmas present and trying to figure out how to get over it, how to deal with it, how to address it. What we're going to move to is how do you recover from it? How do you 
build back better? How do you anticipate the next one, which is certainly going to happen? So there's a series of recovering now and responding, preparing for the next one, and then learning the lessons of what's happened before to avoid the same problems in the future. A good example is actually the Texas cold snap that's just happened. Hopefully, we'll be able to learn lessons from that. Same thing is true with the pandemic. We should be able to learn lessons from it. Well, thank you. I appreciate that first Dickens reference on this podcast. So I very much appreciate that. And hopefully it won't be the last. But do you think as we kind of start to learn these lessons, is sustainable development energy getting worked into this recovery in an appropriate way from your perspective? Well, I can't actually issue the report card until I see the outcome. But your question is actually the perfect question to ask. I would hope that we take account, if you look at all of the anecdotes that are out there of um, confinement and the economic implosion that's occurred and the disappearance of humanity from the world scene and what's happened to the environment in response with fish and dolphins and trees and the rest of it, that really is a lesson that we ought to learn. So when we think about the resources that are going to be needed in the future. And we're kidding ourselves if we think we don't need critical raw materials for batteries and for phones and all of the electrification that's going on. If we don't think we're going to need the materials and resources for high performance buildings and the rest of it, resources are going to be needed. Well, with what's going on with the pandemic, we have an opportunity to do a pivot and really direct investments and reward behaviors that are giving outcomes that are, as I like to say, sustainable. Sustainability isn't just a green issue. It's actually also jobs, it's employment, it's this full spectrum, if you will. So if I want my economy to recover and I want to invest in infrastructure, which we need enormously, that's why this Texas example is so good, we want to develop the systems that can deal with high-performance buildings. Why build a building that doesn't meet tomorrow's standards if you can do it at the same cost? And by injecting funds into the pockets of architects and engineers and carpenters and contractors, you're actually having a direct injection of money into local economies that then create this robust recovery. And oh, by the way, while you were doing that, you're investing in sustainability. It's kind of a no-brainer to my view, but as I said, I can't issue the report card until I see if governments have actually done that. I think that's fair. I mean, you bring up a lot of complex issues here because I guess my next question is, in the U.S. here, we've really adopted this kind of work-from-home attitude, at least for the sectors that can afford to do that. And you're talking about putting money back into these economies and trying to stimulate the economy that way and get people out to work. But in a lot of cases, people aren't going back to work. They're still at home. I mean, is that sort of thing happening in Europe? And how do you see that dynamic impacting a sustainable recovery and sustainable development in the future? I mean, are we going to have work the same way that we used to? My own view, given what we're doing here at the United Nations, is that the work we've done in the past is going to be very different in the future. The idea of being able to work from home is absolutely critical. A lot of the work that we do can be done collaboratively online. And I expect that to be with us for a long time. And that'll have an impact on everything to do with transportation and hotels and restaurants. There'll be a 
travel demand reduction. But there's some things that we can't do at distance. If I'm running a workshop with engineers and showing them how to do in the best way, putting duct tape on uh, systems in a house so that you're um, dealing with thermal bridging issues, you can't do that on a Zoom call. You can't do that on whatever platform you're using. Uh, You've got to go out there and, and get dirt under your fingernails, kick dirt, as I like to say, from my hydro days. So in the future, you're going to see a blend of those who can work from home likely will work more from home. That has to deal with the social issues of work-life balance, as I said. There's also the fact of engaging with people face-to-face is is important. And then on the other side, things that actually have to be done on site, and there's no getting away from that. I'm hopeful that as we've learned the lessons from this pandemic, there's behaviors, there are a lot of lessons going forward that maybe we can avoid a pandemic and contain them better in the future that's an issue to be seen. Yeah. I mean, I think that's all true. And and we'd still have so much to unpack and learn from what's happening. We're in many ways still in the midst of it. So I think those lessons will become clear. You know, you've mentioned a couple of times what's been going on in Texas with the grid down there and the the weather related blackouts and brownouts and everything there. I mean, I think Americans are kind of just learning about the ins and outs of their power grid and our power system here and ERICOT and the different power grids we have. Do you see those same vulnerabilities in Europe? And of course, it's all linked to climate as we have more extreme weather. I mean, do you see those vulnerabilities all over the world? And how can sustainable development address that as we kind of go forward? Yeah, the vulnerabilities are rather common. It's a risk assessment of what might happen, what could happen. I'm originally from California. And when the power grid blackouts happened in the turn of the century, The Europeans were keenly interested on why did this happen. And this was, I think the expression we used at the time was failure by design, because it's how you structure and regulate your markets that's really important. And I think those are some of the important lessons that come out from uh, Texas, from California. But you'll find the same thing in England. Uh, You'll find the same thing in other countries. As you try to incentivize capacity in a market, You need to do it in a way that doesn't lead to peculiar outcomes, Uh, types of units that are all out for maintenance at the same time when something happens. If there's going to be a price spike in gas, and by the way, all of your gas plants are unavailable, those kinds of mismatches can happen all the time. So however you design your market, what's coming down the road is greater value on storage, greater value on supply flexibility, greater value on demand flexibility. And you've got to make sure you've put those kinds of rules in place so that when an expected asset, wherever in the chain that asset might lie, when you expect it to be available, it is available. And that's a huge challenge. Yeah. And I think there was a huge jump to blame renewables or it's blamed on natural gas or this and that. But I think you're right, is that the answer is really a broader mix that's not relying on one or the other and where we can have flexibility and also just putting the proper market incentives in place and regulations too. Mm -hmm. I am a firm believer in mutually beneficial economic interdependence. So what we're going to see as we go forward is some kind of a shift to a market that's well interconnected and interconnectivity is a huge, powerful advantage. And Europe has learned that lesson very well. 
Central Asia had a very well interconnected system, but it was under the Soviet system. Post-Soviet, they split off into different directions. And I think they're now beginning to realize that there's a huge advantage to being interconnected. That's especially valuable when you're talking about renewables across a broad area. So all of those rules about contracting and transacting across borders and boundaries becomes critically important. Hence the phrase market design is an all-encompassing phrase. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that is one of the big lessons from from the Texas crisis is that they just weren't interconnected and there was nowhere to go for help when that particular grid failed. So I think a lot of stuff is going to come out in the next couple of weeks and months about what happened there. But to kind of switch gears a little bit, what are some of the technologies you see emerging to drive down emissions and kind of deal with this resilience issue? You know, in Danfoss, we have a lot of experience with district energy in Europe. Is that something that is continuing to grow or are there other technologies that are emerging um, you know, as we see this green restart happening? Well, there's a number of responses to that one. And let me carve it up into bits and pieces. At the end of the day, if you throw enough money at a problem, you can redirect the problem. I'm not a major fan of subsidizing and supporting an industry. And it's kind of regardless of what that industry is, because you end up creating an industry that really depends upon that subsidy. And I think that's a a wrong way to go. You're better off letting the market play out as it should. The first one that comes to my mind, because it's something that we're working with Danfoss on, is the high performance buildings initiative that we've got ongoing. This is an area where if you could actually improve the functioning of the building sector globally, you would not only drive down emissions, but as I said just a little while ago, you'd be injecting money into the local entrepreneurs who can get the local economies working. Another area which I think is hugely important is decarbonizing transportation. There's a lot of discussion about hydrogen right now. How much mobility demand will there be, transport demand, in the post-COVID world? That's one first important question. But then I hear all these arguments about electric vehicles and the future is all electric. And then the natural gas people come and say, no, no, it's all about natural gas vehicles. And then the hydrogen folks come along and say, no, no, it's all about fuel cells. Frankly, we won't support one versus another of those. But there is a sensible combination of all of them that leads to decarbonization of the transport system. I think that'll be critically important. Storage, if you're going to be increasing intermittency, if there's greater risk in terms of enhancing resilience of the energy system, not just the electric system, then storage becomes important. Whether it's gas, gases, it can be mechanical storage, chemical storage, there's ranges of kinds of storage, also on the demand side, which I've already mentioned. So the whole storage area is one that would be keenly interesting. If I can go slightly into a nexus mode, you've heard in business school, the the best way to make money is to spend other people's money. (laughs) And the issue for the power system, if the transport system is going to be developing a whole load of batteries, then the power system simply needs to figure out how to access that storage, not having to build it itself. And that could be a shift in the perspective on the marketplace. The other three things I'd like to mention um, in terms of technologies to drive down emissions, there's the whole question of methane management. If certain technologies believe they have a role in the future, 
then they've got to manage their emissions of methane, that's oil and gas in particular. And if you want to go NGVs, methane management is critically important. There's the whole issue of infrastructure investment. If we're going to come out with major investments in different kinds of infrastructure, you've got to get them designed and organized in the proper way. If you just do it willy-nilly, you're not advancing your agenda. And then finally is the issue of just transition. And we were talking with folks, I think it was from West Virginia. If all you're going to do with your decarbonization view of leaving it in the ground is creating economic deserts and uh, shattered communities, that's a major obstacle to a transition. So you're going to have to pay attention and make sure that those communities have a vibrant set of alternatives. So part of it is the technology and part of it is the policy framework that you put in place to migrate to those new technologies. And I think that's critically important. With your question on CH on district heating, I would put it in terms of CHP or combined heat and power. Clearly, if you're going to be generating electricity from uh, thermal stations, being able to use any of the waste heat rather than going through a cooling system, but use it for district heating would be uh, very, very important. Denmark has done a very good job on that. And there's a lot of interest in other parts of Europe for that. So those systems aren't necessarily expanding, but there's a great deal of interest in them. Well, Scott, we'd like to wrap up here on the podcast with a forward-looking question. You've just given us a lot to think about on the technology side. But as we think about the pandemic, how has this episode, this year, year plus of the pandemic affected the future of sustainable development? Has it sped it up? Has the outlook sped up now? Have we lengthened the timeline? What's your view on that? Well, in terms of acceleration, I think the challenges that the pandemic has imposed is accelerating. We do need to wait for the report card on how uh, governments respond. Uh, Do they invest in the pivot? But I think it's become clear to everybody the challenge that we face. And this is simply thinking in terms of the health issues associated with covid When we think through the High Performance Buildings Initiative, we're actually dealing with a wide spectrum of topics at the same time. Clearly, we're trying to improve the energy efficiency of buildings. Clearly, we're trying to improve the carbon efficiency of buildings. But oh, by the way, we're also addressing water. We're addressing health. And the whole retrofit market is clearly going to be driven by the economics of the health improvements that you benefit from. So I think all of those are issues that will have been accelerated by the pandemic, but we need to wait for the machinery of government to move on all of the support programs that they're putting in place. One final item that I'd like to mention here, and this is a topic that we're just broaching at the UN, but if you think about what you have in your hand or in your pocket, which is the mobile phone, if you think about how you been traveling on airlines that have been deregulated, if you think about your relationship with your banking institution, all of those have migrated to more of a service orientation. And I would like to argue that the energy system needs to do the same thing. We need to stop thinking about energy as a commodity business, where I make money by selling you more kilowatt hours, more tons of coal, more barrels of oil. But instead, I'm going to actually keep your house at 70 degrees. I'm going to make sure you get the lighting you need and you have a subscription relationship with me. 
It's then my responsibility as the provider of those services to make sure that there's efficiency throughout the system. That way, all of the questions you've been asking about district heating and about what are the technologies that we'll be dealing with, it's not going to be up to your average person in the street to sort that out. It'll be my business model. So suddenly systemic and system energy efficiency becomes central. That's how I think we're going to get to a sustainable set of outcomes. And yeah, I mean, that's a topic we've talked about on the show before, these business models. And we've seen them a little bit in this country and it'd be interesting to hear how it's going in Europe. But we've seen some of these subscription-based business models pop up, but they failed to really catch hold. And I think that is going to be the utilities honestly, that have to drive that and turned into a a service-based model, as you say, as opposed to selling kilowatt hours, because that, again, I believe you're right, is the only way that we're going to change, where they're going to invest substantially to drive down their costs and make money that way. But it has to be a business model problem, not a technology problem, because like you said, I think the technology is there. It's really about the business model at this point. So that's all the time we have. Scott, I want to thank you so much. This was a great discussion. I learned a lot. I hope you had a good time. And that's it for this episode of Envisioning Exchange. Again, I'd like to thank my guest, Scott Foster of the UNECE for joining us. And don't forget to subscribe to Envisioning Exchange on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, or wherever it is you get your podcasts. And lastly, if you enjoyed this episode, please don't forget to rate, review, and share with your network. Again, my name is John Sheff. I'm the Director of Public and Industry Affairs for Danfoss. And thanks for listening. We'll talk to you next time. This podcast is for information purposes only. The views, information, or opinions expressed during the Envisioneering Exchange podcast series are solely those of the individuals involved and not necessarily represent those of Danfoss LLC and its employees. Danfoss LLC is not responsible and does not verify for accuracy any of the information contained in the podcast series available for listening on this site. This podcast series does not constitute professional advice or services. This podcast, including Danfoss LLC and the producers, disclaim responsibility from any possible adverse effects of information contained herein. Opinion of guests are their own, and Danfoss LLC in this podcast does not endorse or accept responsibility of statements made by guests. This podcast does not make any representations or warranties about the guest qualifications or credibility. Individuals on this podcast may have a direct or indirect financial interest in products or services referred to herein. This podcast is available for private, non-commercial use only. You may not edit, modify, or redistribute this podcast. The developers of the Envisioneering Exchange podcast site assume no liability for any activities in connection with this podcast or for use of this podcast in connection with any other web website, computer, or playing device.